1: Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, episode 39.
2: Welcome fellow travelers to Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. I'm Marco Palmieri, your guide for another amazing adventure. We're back with the start of another two-part tale, this time an ambitious reimagining of the afterlife from prolific and multiple awards-winning writer Catherine M. Valenti. No One Dies in Nowhere was originally published in 2017 in the anthology The Weight of Worlds from Subterranean Press, and is narrated for Realm by Neil Helligers and Robin Miles. In the afterlife city of nowhere, Where nothing happens and the only thing to do is forget, a detective investigates an impossible murder. Buckle up, gentle listeners, for No One Dies in Nowhere, Part 1. There
3: is a clicking sound before she appears, like a gas stove before it lights. One moment there is nothing, the next there is pieta though this is the last gasp of before-after causality in her pure pale mind. Now that she is here, she will always have been here. Charcoal blue rags twist and braid and drape around her body more artfully than any gown. A leather falcon's hood closes up her head but does not blind her. The eye cups are a fine bronze mesh that lets in light. Long Jesse's hang from her thin wrists. This room, which she has never seen, belongs to her as utterly as her eyes. A monk's cell, modest but perfect and graceful. Candles thick as calf bones. Water in a black basin. A copper rain barrel, empty. She runs her hand along the smooth, wine-dark stone of her walls. Her fingertips leave phosphor prints. She lays down on her bed, a shelf for holding pietas carved out of the rock, mattressed in straw, and withered thorny wild flowers that smell of the village where she was born. From the straw, she can look out of three slim glassless windows shaped like chess bishops. A gray damp sky steals in, a burgling fog climbing up toward her, a hundred million kinds of gray swirling together, and the stars behind, waiting. Pieta remembers the feeling of the first day of school. She goes to the window and looks out, looks down. Her long hair hangs over the ledge like two thick vines. Black, seedless earth below, dizzyingly far. As close as spying neighbors across a shared alley, the sheer knife-cragged mountain stretches up into the dimming clouds and disappears into oncoming night. The mountain crawls with people. Each carries a black lantern, half as tall as they. A man with a short, lovely beard chokes on the smoke, puking forth from his light. But even as he chokes, he holds it closer to his mouth, desperate to get more. Their eyes meet. Pieta holds up her hand in greeting. He opens his jaw far wider than any bone allows, and takes long, sultry bites out of the smoke. When she turns away, a bindle lies on her bed of stone and straw, a plain handkerchief knotted around a long, burled black branch. She looses the cloth. Inside, she finds a wine bottle, a pair of scissors, a stone figure of a straight-backed child in a chair, A brass key, a cracked, worn belt with two holes torn through, and a hundred shattered shards of colored glass. Pieta picks up one of the blades of glass and holds it to her breast until it slices through her skin. The glass is violet. The blood never comes.
1: Second Terrace, the Proud on an endless plain where nothing grows, lies a mountain as crowded as a city and a city as vast as a mountain. They face one another like bride and bridegroom. The city was enclosed at the commencement of linear time, a great ancient abbey bristling with domes, towers, spires, and stoas, chiseled out of rock the color of wine spilled on the surface of Mars, doorless but not windowless, Never windowless. Candlelight twinkling from millions upon millions of arched and tapered clefts in the stone. From every one of these you can see the mountain clearly, the people moving upon it, their lamps swinging back and forth, their hurryings and their stillnesses. The whispered talk of the people on the mountain can always be heard in the cloisters of the city, as though there is not a mile of churning black mud between the woman emptying her rain barrel after a storm and the ragged man murmuring on the windy crags. A road connects the mountain and the city, lit by blue gas lamps cobbled by giants. No one has ever seen a person walk that road, though they must, or else what could be its purpose? The clouded, pregnant sky swallows the peak of the mountain, but declines the heights of the city. When there are stars, they are not our stars. They are not even white but red as watchfires. In the city, which is called Nowhere, a man with the head of a heron sat comfortably in the topmost room of the policeman's tower, working on his novel. It was slow going. He supposed he had everything he needed, a hurricane lamp full of oil, a stone cup full of dry red wine, a belly full of hot buttered toast, A typewriter confiscated from a poor soul, he'd caught sledgehammering Fuck This Place onto the north stairwell of the Calabria's Quarter, a ream of fresh, bright paper filched from the records office. It was a quiet night in nowhere. The criminal element, such as it was, seemed content to sleep the cold stars away until morning, leaving Detective Balacqua in peace. He tried typing... It was a quiet night in nowhere. Then, disgusted with himself, abandoned his desk with a flamboyant despair no one could see to appreciate, and stared gloomily out the long, slender stone window onto the mud plain far below. A moonless spring blackness slept on the fields outside the walled city. It was always spring in nowhere, but there were no cherry blossoms, no daffodils or new hens, Only the cold, dark mud of snow just melted. The trees stripped naked. Bare arms flung up pleading for the sun. The smell of green, but not the green itself. Every day was the day before the first crocus breaks the skull of Earth. The held breath before beginning can begin. Always march. Never may. Detective Balakwa had several strikes against him as a budding author. For one thing, he had very little conception of time, an essential element in organizing narrative. He was, after all, mostly infinite. He barely remembered his childhood, if he could be said to have had one at all. But he remembered the incandescent naphtha splatter of the birth of the universe pretty well. What order things happened in and why wasn't his business, he didn't pry. And this was another problem for Detective Balakwa had not, in all his long tenure in the Walled City, felt the urge to question any aspect of his existence. Such restlessness was not marked out on the map of a Estrigal's heart the way it was scribbled on every inch of the maps of men. Balakwa enjoyed his slow progress through each day and night. He enjoyed hot butter toast and dry red wine. He enjoyed his job felt himself to be necessary in a way as profound as food to a body. Someone had to keep order in this orderless place. Someone had to give nowhere its shape and itself. His world was a simple equation. If crime, then punishment. It didn't matter at all why or how a criminal did his work, only that he had done it. And because he never bothered with the rest, Detective Balakua was a hopeless novelist. "'for he had no clear idea "'of what drove anyone "'to do much of anything "'except be a policeman "'and bear lightly "'the granite weight "'of an unmovable cosmos. "'The actions of others "'were baffling "'and mostly unpleasant. "'He had never moved "'in the mortal coil "'of clanging "'and conflicting wills. "'All he had ever known "'was nowhere, "'and by the time "'nowhere happened "'to a person, "'they had already made "'all the choices "'that mattered. "'Yet, Detective Balakwa longed to write with every part of his unmeasurable psyche. He had been a happy man before he discovered books. Very occasionally, people brought them to nowhere in their sad little bindles. The first time Balakwa saw one during a quickly opened, quickly shut case of petty theft in the Castitas district, he had confiscated it and crouched for hours in a vestibule, transfixed, as he read the crumbling paperback the very hows and whys Balakwa had never understood. But it was not enough to read. Balakwa wanted more. There were no striggles in any of the books men brought to nowhere, no one like him. The men had men heads and men desires and the women had women heads and women ambitions and nowhere could his heron soul find a sympathetic mirror. And so he tried and tried and at best he plonked out It was a quiet night in nowhere, on the back of a blank incident report. He felt deeply ashamed of his desires and told no one. None of his comrades could hope to understand. But it was, indeed, a quiet night in nowhere. But a night was not a book. Make something happen, you blistered fool, Detective Blackwa grumbled to himself. A knock comes upon the door. Rubbish. Detective Balakwa pushed back from his desk, his belly perhaps slightly less righteously muscled than it had been when the Primordium was new. He wrapped a long scarf the color of cigarette ash around his feathered throat, snatched his black duster from the hook near the door, and abandoned his post only for a moment in search of something more fortifying than buttered toast to fuel his furtive ambitions. He had hardly left the tower when the alarm lamps began to burn.
3: Third Terrace The Envious Sixty-six days later, Pieta steps out of her room for the first time. No one has come for her, She has heard no footsteps in the long hall beyond her door. But a kind of rootless fear like thin pale mold forked slowly through her limbs, and she could not bring herself to move. She measures out the time in bears and glass. Each morning, Pieta places a shard of colored glass on her windowsill. They split the candlelight into harlequin grapeshot, firing volleys of scarlet, cobalt, emerald toward the mountain outside. She has developed a kind of semaphore with the smoke eaters on those icy slopes. At least, when she moves her arms, they move theirs. But perhaps Pieta is the only one who imagines an alphabet. Each evening, she watches the bears come in across the mud plain and snuggle against the city for warmth. She does not know where they come in from, only that they do, hundreds of them, and that they are not very like the bears she remembers, though the act of remembering now is like reading a Greek manuscript, slow, laborious, full of transcription errors, clarity coming late and seldom. It is possible bears have always looked like the beasts who rub their enormous flanks against the pockmarked burgundy stone of the city walls as the red stars hiss up in the dusk. But Pieta does not think bears ever had such long stone-silver fur, or that they wore that fur in braids, or that they had a circlet of so many eyes round their heads, or that they had tusks quite so inlaid with gold. So passes 66 days. Glass arms, smoke, bears. She gathers together her only belongings and secrets them in the slits and knots of her clothes. Beyond the door of the room belonging to Pieta, she finds a hole that splits like a vein into a snarl of staircases. Will she be able to find her way back? The fearful mold begins to grow again, but she stifles it, burns it out, descends a black iron spiral stair down, down, to another hall, under an arch into which some skilled hand has carved penuria, under which some rather less skilled hand has painted, for a good time find Beatrice. Pieta looks back in the direction she has come. The other side of the stone arch reads, tedium. She will try to remember that she lives in tedium. Pieta passes beneath Contemptus Mundi, and Beatrices come hither into a courtyard under the open sky. The courtyard throngs with people and forbidding candles, standing as tall and thick as fir trees, barked in the globs and drips and wind spatters of their yellow wax. There is a stone bowl near the yawning edge of the terrace, filled with burnt knobs of ancient wood and volcanic rock. People like her move between the tallow monoliths and the stone bowl, wrapped tight in complex charcoal blue rags and falcon hoods. But not like her, for they chatter together as though they belong here, as though the here-ness of here of heres no surprise to them. They huddle around beaten copper rain barrels, looking up anxiously at the spinning scarlet stars. They pass objects furtively from one hand to the next. They stare out at the constant vastness of the mountain pricked with lantern light before plunging their hands into the bowl and devouring the charred and ashen joints of wood. Pieta is noticed. A middle aged man, with an unusual nose and arthritic hands, pulls her urgently behind one of the cathedral column candles. She can see blue eyes beneath the mesh of his blinders. What did you bring? He whispers. Pieta remembers the feeling of a husband she did not want. She answers, I don't know what you're talking about. Because she doesn't. She has nothing. The man sighs and tries again, more kindly, holding her less tightly. In your bindle, what did you carry with you to nowhere? Don't be afraid. It's important, my dear, that's all. It is everything.
4: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story. Dark Dice. A horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again.
1: Detective Balakwa navigated the night-crowded halls of the Tameratoptus precinct with ease. The locals parted into ragged blue waves to let him pass. Some held their hands to their mouths, some fell to their knees, but Balakwa knew the difference between awe and reflex. They genuflected because they thought they should. They thought it might help. The crowd around the automat was thin. Humans didn't eat at the finer establishments. They had no currency. The wonderful glass wall of cool plates and steaming bowls was for the comfort of the stridgils, a small luxury in this rather undistinguished outpost. Behind the bank of windows set into two feet of dark abbey stone, Balakwa saw a woman with the head of an osprey move with mindful grace, clearing the old dishes, bringing in the new. Her black and white feathers shone in the kitchen lights. "'But have you got in the way of savory tonight, Giacomo I'm in the mood for salt. Giacima pushed aside the little window on an empty compartment of the automat. Her mild seabird eyes floated in the glass as though they were the night special. Good evening, detective. I've got a lovely rind of cheese from the Gluttons Farms. It's all yours. Detective Inspector Soon, Balakwa said with a flush of pride. He took his crescent of cheese from the window. Only then did he see the young girl staring up at him through the blinders of her falconhood, rubbing anxiously at the backs of her hands. Are you a demon? She whispered. Are you an angel? Nah, Blakwa answered around a mouthful of white cheese. I work for a living. The child might have said more, but a commotion disturbed the evening throngs. A strapping man with a raven's grand face strode toward Detective Blakwa out of breath, trembling in his black finery. Sergeant Tomek! But in all the eons of known existence, Bulacqua had only known his sergeant to be a calm and rather cold sort. Sergeant Tomek clasped his hand roughly, his raven's face handsome and dark and puffed with excitement or terror. His black ruff bristled. Sir, I hate to trouble you at this hour, and I know you hate to be interrupted when you are working, but... Something terrible's happened. Something dreadful. You must come. Detective Balakwa tightened his long gray scarf and smoothed back his own rumpled feathers. Calm down, Tomek. You'll spook the poor creatures. Just present the facts of the case and we'll see to it with a quickness. What can possibly have you in such a state? Sergeant Tomek stared at the wine-dark flagstone floor, He swallowed several times before whispering wretchedly. A body, sir. Well, that's hardly cause for all this upset, Sergeant. We're nothing but bodies around here, bodies, bodies everywhere, and hardly one can think. Go home and get some sleep, man. We'll see to it in the morning. The raven-headed Sergeant sighed and tried again, more miserably and more quietly than before, A dead body, sir. A corpse. Detective Balakwa blinked. Don't be stupid, Tomek. Sir, I know how it sounds. Tomek glanced around at the passing folk, but most gave the policeman a wide berth. But there is a dead woman lying face down with her throat cut, and there's blood everywhere and things on her back, and she is very very dead. Detective Balakwa grimaced with embarrassment. Sergeant Tomek, he hissed, they can't die. It's not possible. They steal, they cheat, they vandalize, they fornicate, they lie, they curse God, but they do not kill. And they do not die. That's not how it works. That's the whole point. But the raven would only say, Come see, Detective Balakwa thought of his novel, and his dry red wine waiting safe and warm for him in the watchtower. They called to him, but he knew what duty was, even if he did not know how to begin his opus. Where is she? Sergeant Tomek trilled unhappily. He ran his hand along the black blade of his beak. Outside.
3: Fifth Terrace the covetous. Pieta follows the man with the unusual nose. They have exchanged names. His is Savonarola. He spits the syllables of himself as though he hates their taste. He leads her through a door marked Contemptus Mundi. My home, he sighs, such as it is. I live in tedium, Pieta answers, And it is such a relief that she has remembered it, that the information was there when she reached for it, solid, heavy, cold to the touch. She almost stumbles with the sweetness of it. Savonarola grunts in sympathy. (laughs) Too bad for you. You'll find no fraternity among your neighbors then. They keep to themselves in tedium. They do not come to cloister, they do not trade, they do not attend the rainstorms. They don't even take Christmas with the rest of us. But perhaps that's to your taste. Tedium, tedium, so close to tedium, you know. What passes for cleverness around here? Pieta remembers the feeling of longing for something lost before she ever had it. I have made friends with a man on the mountain. He moves his arms, I move mine. We are up to the letter G, but there is no G in my name. So he cannot know me. I am, I am lonely. I thought someone would come for me. No one on the mountain is your friend, girl, snaps Savonarola and they emerge into a wide piazza full of long tables with thick legs and glass lanterns the size of parish churches shining out into the mist of the night. Wind pulls at them like a beggar pleading. The tables are full of handkerchiefs, unknotted, their contents laid out lovingly. More men and women in charcoal blue rags, closely guarding each little clutch of junk. Savonarola introduces her to a small, dark woman with a beautiful, delicate mouth. The woman is called Awo. She has an extraneous thumb on her left hand, small and withered and purple. Pieta touches the objects on Awo's handkerchief, running her hands over them gently. They awake feelings in her that do not belong to her a drinking cup, a set of sewing needles, a red brick, a pot of white paint, several ballpoint pens, and a length of faded paisley fabric. When Pieta touches the sewing needles, she remembers the feeling of embroidering her daughter's wedding dress. But Pieta had only sons, and they are babies yet. You have lovely things, Pieta whispers. Oh, they aren't mine, Awo says. The wind off of the mountain dampens all their voices. I long ago traded away the objects I brought with me into this place, and traded what I got in return, and traded that again, and so on and so forth, and again and again. Everything in the world, it turns out, is escapable except economy. Those objects which were once so dear to me, I can no longer even name. Did I come with a cup, a belt, a signet ring? I cannot say. Now, what will you give me for my fabric? Savonarola says you have scissors. Pieta touches her ribs where she hid the shears. She looks away into the crystal doors of a massive lantern and the flames within. But what are these things? What is this place? Why do I have this pair of scissors in this city at this moment? Savonarola and Awo glance at one another. They are your last belongings, Savonarola says. The things you lingered over on your last day. Rain comes to the city. It falls from every dark cloud and splashes against the lanterns, the tables, the buyers, and the sellers. Everyone runs for their rain barrels, dragging them into the piazza, the copper bottoms scraping the stone. The rain that falls is not water, but wine, red and strong. Pieta remembers the feeling of dying alone.
1: The Sixth Terrace, The Wrathful Detective Balacqua stood over the woman's body, He let a long, low whistle out of his beak and reached into his pocket for a cigarette. Sergeant Tomek opened his black jaws. A ball of blue flame floated on his tongue. Balakwa lit his wrinkled, broken stump of tobacco and breathed deep. Isn't there someone else we can hand this off to? Someone higher up? Someone better? Tomek stared down at the corpse as it lay face down on the slick blue-black cobblestones of the road that connected the city and the mountain. The blue of the gas lamps made her congealing blood look like cold ink. You have the watch, Detective Inspector, he said, emphasizing his soon-to-come promotion. But they both knew this woman, the very fact of her, made all ranks and systems irrelevant. Blanco scratched the longer feathers at the nape of his neck. The clouds boiled and swam above them, raveling, unraveling, spooling gray into gray. He could not remember the last time he'd set foot outside the city, probably sometime around the invention of music. The air smelled of crackling pre-lightning ozone and, bizarrely, nutmeg fruits, when they are wet and new and look like nothing so much as black, bleeding hearts. Is she going to... rot, do you think? Sergeant Tomek mused. Well, I don't bloody well know, do I? The man with the heron's head snapped back. Detective Balakwa had closed thousands of cases in his infinite career. The nowhere locals got up to all manner of nonsense, and he didn't blame them in the least. On the contrary, he felt deeply for the poor, blasted things. And when it fell to him to hand out punishments... He was as lenient as the rules allowed. He was a creature of rules, was Balakwa, but the vast majority of his experience lay in vandalism, petty theft, minor assault, and public drunkenness. Every so often something spicier came his way, attempted desertion, adultery, assaults upon the person of a strigil. But never this, of course never this, this was against the rules.' the first rule, the foundational rule, so foundational that until tonight he had not even thought to call it a rule at all. Detective Balakwa knelt to examine the body. He suspected that was the sort of thing to do, just pretend it was a bit of burglary. Nothing out of the ordinary, seemed the crime and all that. Good, first step. Go on, then. Right, um, the deceased, should we say deceased? Are you writing this down, Tomek? For God's sake. The, um, re-deceased is female, approximately twenty-odd-something years of age. Is that right? It's so hard to tell with people. I don't mean to be insensitive, of course. Oh, certainly not, sir. It's just that they all look a little alike, don't they, Sergeant? Tomek looked distinctly uncomfortable. His dark, ruff bristled. About... Forty, I should say, Detective Inspector. Ah, yes, thank you. Forty years of age, brunette, olive-complected, quite tall, nearly six foot as I reckon it. Her hood seems to have gone missing, and her clothes are, well, there's not much left of them, is there? Just right, in disarray. Spare her some dignity. Now that he'd begun, Balakwa found he could hardly stop. It came so naturally, like a song. Cause of death appears to be a lateral cut across the throat and exsanguination, though where she got all that blood I can't begin to think. Bruises, well, everywhere, really, but particularly bad on her belly and the backs of her thighs. And there's the markings. Do you think that happened before or, well, I mean to say, after, Tomek? The raven sergeant's black eyes flickered helplessly between the corpse and the detective. "'Sir,' he swallowed finally, "'how can we possibly tell?' Balakwa remembered the book he'd devoured so greedily in that sad little vandal cell, the book without a cover and with yellow-stained pages, a book in which many people had died and gotten their dead selves puzzled over. "'I've an idea about that, sergeant,' he said finally. Write down that she's got patience carved into her back in Greek. Not too neatly, either. It looks like someone went at her with a pair of scissors. Then get the boys to carry her up to my office before anyone else decides to have a look out their window and starts ringing up a panic. Carefully, don't... don't damage her any more than she already is. Blaqua gazed up at the great mountain that faced his city, into the wind and the lantern lights and the constant oncoming night. Poor lamb, he sighed, and when the patrolman came to lift her up, he pressed his feather cheek against hers for a moment, his belly full of something he very well thought might be grief. Seventh Terrace
3: The Excommunicate Savonarola Alvo and Pieta sit around a brimming rain barrel. The storm has passed. The sky is for once almost clear, barnacled with fiery stars. They drink with their hands, cupping fingers, and dipping into the silky red wine, slurping without shame. The dead know how to savor, as the living never can. The wine is heavy but dry. Much debate has filled the halls of nowhere over the centuries, is it a Beaujolais, Montrachet, plain Chianti? Savonarola is firmly in the Montrachet camp. Arwo thinks it is most certainly an Algerian Corignon. Pieta thinks it is soft and sour and kind. Memory is a bad house guest in this place, Savonarola says softly. Red raindrops streak his face like a statue of a saint weeping blood. For you, the worst of it will come in 20 years or so. Dying is the blow, memory is the bruise. It takes time to develop, to reach a full and purple lividity. Around 80 years in nowhere, give or take. Then the pain will take you, and it will not give you back again for autumns upon winters. You will know everything you were and everything you lost. But the bruise of having lived will fade too, and your time in nowhere will dwarf your time in the world such that all life will seem to be a letter you wrote as a child, addressed to a stranger and never delivered. Awo sucks the wine from her brown, slender fingers. Awo alive feels to me like a character in a film I saw when I was young and loved. Awo and her husband Kofi, who wore glasses, and her three daughters, and seven grandchildren, and her degree in electrical engineering. And the day she saw Accra for the first time, Accra and the sea, I am fond of all of them, but I see them now from very far away. If I remember anything, if I tilt my head or say a word as she would have done, it is like quoting from that film, not like being our. I went to the noose long before such things as moving pictures could be imagined, Savonarola admits. Pieta thinks for a long while, watching herself in the reflection of the wine. And what of the mountain? What of the men and women there? Very well, I am dead. Where is paradise? Where is hell? Where is the fire or the clouds? Is this purgatory? Awo touches Pieta's cheek. Me broniba. That mountain out there is purgatory. day, maybe, we'll go there and start our long hitchhike of the soul up, up, up into the sea of glass and the singing and the rings of eyes and the eternal surrealist discotheque of the saved. Nowhere is for us sad sacks who died too quick to repent or naughties like Savonarola who was so stuck up himself that he got excommunicated. And here we sit, with nothing to do but drink the rain for 300 times our living years. Savonarola cracks his gnarled knuckles. I admit, if some man in Florence had discovered a way to film the moon rising over the ripples of the Arno, or the building of Brunelleschi's ridiculous dome or even one of my own sermons, and I was very good in my day. I would have set fire to the reels with all the rest, and I would have rejoiced. All in which the eye longs to revel is vanity, vanity. Only now do I long for such things, for something to see besides this stone, something to touch besides the dead. Something to hear besides talk, talk, talk. What I would not give in this moment for one glimpse of Botticelli's pornography, one vulgar passage of lecherous Boccaccio, one beautiful deck of gambling cards. God, I think, is irony. I will go mad, Pietro whispers. Yes, agrees Awu. Pieta pleads. But it will pass. It will pass, and I will go to the mountain and take up a lantern and begin to climb. It will pass, and we will go, we will go on, up, out, progress. Savonarola pinches his nose between his fingers and smiles softly. He has never been a man given to smiling. He had only done it ten or eleven times in total. But all... In secret, Girolamo Savonarola possesses one of the loveliest and kindest smiles in all the long history of joy. Do the math, my child. 300 times the span of a human life, we must rattle the stones of nowhere. Since the death of Solomon and the invention of the alphabet, no one yet has gotten out.
2: Things are definitely getting tense in nowhere. But to find out how the investigation concludes, join us in our next episode for part two. In the meantime, why not give a listen to Ninth Step Murders? In a near-future Tokyo, a Japanese investigator and a UN peacekeeper reluctantly join forces to solve a series of bizarre deaths. Or you might enjoy The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. It's Manhattan, 1933, and a queer Afro-Latina PI can see the darkness coming but she may not be able to stop it. Both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels.
0: You're listening to Tales Beyond Time. Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Listen away.
2: Contained herein are the heresies of
1: Radolf Buntwein. Erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator.
2: Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, coming January 2nd,
1: wherever podcasts are available.
0: Tales Beyond Time, Episode 39, features No One Dies in Nowhere. Written by Catherine M. Valenti. It is produced by Mary Ossidolahi and Marco Palmieri. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri. And performed by Neil Helligers and Robin Miles. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Nicholas Papaleo. Cover art by Kendall Thomas.